Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're starting a new book. It's The Taking of the Grey by John Macefield, who you'll know, of course, from his favourite poem, Sea Fever. Take me down to the sea, the lonely sea and the sky, and all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. I do hope that you'll enjoy listening to something new from this much-beloved author. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast, or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week, or of course, the Mariner YouTube channel, where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. Chapter 1. The events of the Great War have made men forget that civil war in Santa Ana but in 1911, war, being rare, was news in the newspapers, and even that little civil war made a stir. Some of its events were much talked of at the time, and this event of the Gry won its hearers. I can tell you about the Gry better than most people. I'm going to set it down here before I'm too old. I was concerned in her taking. These writing fellows have added things to the tale and made it seem not simple. It was simple. You all know the eastern Spanish main, the Tierra Firme, with its coast and the mountains behind it. People go there for the winter cruises now, and no wonder, for each republic is wonderful in its own way. Marul to the east, rather stern, rich in iron, then further west, Santa Barbara, rich in copper, then still further west, Santa Ana, rich in all things. Beyond these to the west are what we call the old republics, those which first broke with Spain. There is no country more marvellous than Spain, nor any that has left such a mark. She has left three things behind her wherever she has gone, a story, a faith, and a dignity. I am a sailor by profession. As soon as I had a certificate, I moved to get into the sun on the Tierra Firme. I was given a berth in one of Green and Silver's ships. De Silva it had been, but the last De Silva married young Green, you will have heard of green and silvers of the Spanish main trade, perhaps. They were pioneers from over a hundred years ago, having begun in the sugar trade. They carried the mails and did a regular service right along the coast from Veracruz to Trinidad, one slow ship stopping at each port every week and one fast ship touching at only the big ports once a fortnight. We were the only line on the coast at that time, and no doubt the firm made money, we had all the passengers, all the mails, and all the carrying trade. I was not much interested in that side of it. I was interested in the Tierra Firme and in getting to be a pilot to the coast. There was no pilot service there, then, except in Santa Barbara. The men in our service had to pilot the ships themselves. I started forth in the Melanche, the oldest and slowest ship in the fleet. But what joy to have the chance. There was fever here and there, of course, and sometimes the rains were a nuisance. Still, this is life, where it doesn't do to expect too much. In exchange for it all, there was the piloting. Some lucky men have the job of being pilot up and down a thousand miles of river. Perhaps they are bored by having it all the time. I had it only once in every other day or so, like a pearl after a long stretch of string. But it was joy when it came. You may imagine what it feels like to be on the bridge, drawing near to your port, all keyed up to bring her in in style, watching for the marks of the coast and listening for the surf on the outlier. 
I loved it best before dawn, when coming into a land as dark as indigo, with the faintest of colour pale in the sky above, there would be the forward well and the forecastle lit by the masthead light, the back of the lookout man craned over the dodger and the gleam of the water spreading from the bows. I loved that picture of the bows and all the tenseness of those near me, the leadsmen so trusted and sure, in the dickies at the bridge ends ready for the quick casts, and the quartermaster's face above the wheel in the glow of the binnacle lights with his eyes steady on his mark or on his card. Perhaps the old man or the second officer would be on the bridge with me. Sometimes there would be passengers just below the bridge shuffling about in the chill and dew to see the ship go in. Some men, fond of power, love speaking to an audience and holding it by what is living in themselves. Others love the rule of an orchestra and choir and the bringing out of music from them. To myself, the joy is the handling of a big ship in a difficult passage, all beset with reefs and the knowledge that my clear head will carry her clear and set her down at her marks. I got into the way of making in my mind an image of each channel and harbour as it looked under water and as it looked above. I got to know each place as, shall we say, the seal or the gannet or the osprey might know it. To this day, if I close my eyes, I can reel out in a panorama in its own colour with most of its detail a thousand miles of the Tierra Firme, from Las Palamos to Monte, cape after cape, bay after bay, light and mark and breaking reef, and still see the underwater rocks in each anchorage and know how much space I have between the keel and them. When I get to the other world, I hope that there will be some difficult channels not properly charted, so that when I take the angels cruising, I may be of use. Of all the republics along that thousand miles, I liked best that of Santa Ana, which borders Santa Barbara to the west. It is one of the new republics. It is small, as the new world goes, and it has a coast of 400 miles and no great depth. But it has a driving, stirring climate without a rainy season, and the people are as stirring and delightful as the climate. A great many English have gone there during the past 150 years, some of them took part in the War of Independence. Almirante Brown is on their postage stamps to this day. Long before I went to those parts, I knew about Almirante Brown. His people came from the Shropshire side of the Welsh border, near Caer Ochrun. His sister married my great-great-grandfather. We had a miniature of the Almirante at Assenden St. Mary. As a little boy, collecting postage stamps, I used to compare it with the stamps, which of course showed a much older man. People used to talk vaguely in my presence about our Santa Ana relations, for they were descendants of the Almirante. I never expected to see any of them, but in time, I did. As Santa Ana is a rugged land with bad inland communications, they use the sea a great deal, more than any nation and have many little ports and two big ones, Santa Ana, the capital, and El Puno, the naval port. I shall mention both later. Under Spain, this state was a part of the province of Santa Barbara, but it split away from Santa Barbara when it broke from Spain, and has ever since been fiercely independent. Santa Barbara has often schemed to bring her back within the fold. It may be that old Don Manuel, the dictator, with his wisdom and force, might have contrived this, but he died, and his successors, the tame elected presidents, have made it impossible. Their blunderings and threatenings so scared the Santanos that they built themselves a navy. 
This Santa Ana Navy is English in tone, being English trained and very good. The two countries make very touchy neighbours. Green and Silvers wanted Santa Barbara to swallow up the other. Many English people did also. My own wishes were all the other way. When once I had seen the Santanos, I was all for them and their independence. They are brisk, stirring fellows, twice the men these barbarians are. All through my childhood, as it happened, I had thought of these two lands because in my father's library I found a copy of Nathaniel Clutterbuck's Golden Voyage of Sir Francis Drake to both the ports. It was one of my favourite books. In especial, I loved to read how Drake, being barred out of Santa Barbara Harbour by a boom across the mouth, yet sought out and found another entrance by sounding cautiously through the outer reefs. By this channel, he towed his fleet into the haven and took the city. That maze of Troia of rocks and shelves did show forth to his sounders a way or channel. When I entered Green and Silver's employ, I too entered those ports. I shall not forget how I looked out for the reefs through which Drake passed. I saw them first in a romping easterly gale that showed them at their finest, with every rock breaking water. You may be sure that as soon as I had leisure, with weather permitting, I went out to that maze of Troya to examine it for myself, with the aid of an old chart made by Lieutenant D.G. Severnine of Royal Navy of Her Majesty's Survey Brig Boxer, 1811. Severnine must have been deeply interested in Drake. He took the trouble to trace out the only possible course by which Drake could have brought his fleet through the rocks. He marks it Drake's Channel, with the shrewd marginal comment that it must be a part of a submerged river mouth, the channel being the bed of the river and the reefs the banks. About twelve years before I went there, the old dictator planned to make Drake's Channel a fairway or entrance to the naval harbour. He began work upon it, but his successors shrank from the expense and abandoned it with the remark, Why bother? I shall have more to say later about this channel. At this point, I will say only that it was thrilling to me to be near it and to be at sea upon that coast, taking ships into and out of the harbour. To be in the sun and the freedom away from the dirt, fog and poverty, trying the strength of one's youth. What more could man ask? On my second passage east, I asked the old man if he would let me take her into Santa Ana. As I showed him that I knew the marks, he let me, and I did it. He was not one to show approval warmly. He growled with his usual anger at the conditions of the service. Uh, if you can find your way about like this, they'll let you be a cab driver in London. Then they'll sack you from the sea. He said no word of praise then, but later when we were on the bridge together, he said, Do you know the Puno marks? Yes, sir, I said. The Merchant Service Harbour. Ah, he said. And Santa Barbara? Yes, sir. All the outer anchorage? Hmm, you got a good memory. For the marks on a chart, sir, and for the lights on a coast. Yes, he growled. And how if the lights aren't there in the fog? Well, I would try a grope with a lead, sir. Yes, he said bitterly. That's what we all try sooner or later, and pile her up on a reef or put her down the well and get the sack from the sea for it. We'll be in Santa Barbara after midnight on this trip. We'll see if you can take her in there. Oh, thank you, sir. I'm sure I can, sir. Youth's a sight too sure, if you ask me, he growled. And after forty years of it, you'll find nothing sure except a workhouse ward. Do you know Marul Passage? Uh, yes, sir. Marks and soundings and bearings. Wait till you have to take it on a thick night. 
and the company will sack you if you funk it, and the board of trade will sack you if you muss it. What did you come to see for? Uh, fun, sir, I said, and I didn't get on with my father. Well, he growled, a man who goes to sea for fun would go to hell for a pastime. Where did you learn these things, in the Tierra Firme pilot? Uh, partly, sir. I've got the pilot, and then the charts are pretty good, and then I've been into all the ports twice now. And you speak Spanish pretty well, I notice. I understand it better than I speak it, sir. Well, you can't get along without it here, that's sure, he said. It's said to be a pretty tongue, but the way they sing it is a dog whine when it isn't a caterwaul. They got that from the locals, they say. They're a good lot on the coast, but they're foreigners when all is said. Yes, sir. If you'll take a fool's advice, he said suddenly, you'll get ashore before the sea's got you. Get your hooks into something solid like a copper mine. There are chances here on the coast to a young man like you, so that you needn't spend your days sweating another man's ship from port to port. Think of it, mister, before it's too late. The sea's like rheumatism or marriage. It gets you before you know it, and it's hard to drop. Yes, sir, I said quietly. Are you thinking of trying for a job ashore? he asked. I hadn't thought of it, sir. Well, thought's the last thing you ask a fourth officer for, according to the catechism, he said. He nodded to me and went below growling. He was a testy old bear, about to be retired at the age of sixty-five and angry about it. We went on to Santa Barbara. We were delayed by a roaring norther off the Cape, so didn't reach the outer reefs till after two in the morning of a black, wild day with a real surf on the outliers. It was clear enough, but with such a sea running, you could get odd casts of a lead. I took her in to her marks there. They called the old man when he got the bearings for entrance. They told me that on being called, he sat up and asked, Is Mr. Tarleton on the bridge? And on being told yes, just growled, Well, why call me? He can take her in better than I can, and then turned over and went to sleep again. We had a busy forenoon there. The captain went ashore soon after breakfast. While we were busy at our hatches getting cargo in or out, checking, tallying, and keeping an eye on the gangs, I did not know it and had no suspicion of it, but while he was ashore, the old man talked to young Mr. Green about me. He knew, though I did not, that the fourth in the Oquindo, one of our crack ships, was swallowing the anchor for a shore job. He strongly recommended me for the billet, for though I was junior in the service, I could pilot and talk the language. Young Mr. Green came aboard with the old man just before lunch while I was tallying cocoa bags on the forehatch. As it happened, just as he reached the bridge above me, I spotted the native tallier delivering a short sling and rounded on him in my best Spanish. It was just the sheerest luck that I had seen the dodge and that young Green should have been there at that instant, but it confirmed him in the opinion that the old man had fostered in him. At knock-off time, Mr. Green sent for me into the old man's cabin. Young Mr. Green was a lad of much charm, still modest from youth and a little shy from inexperience. He said how much pleased the firm always was when an officer showed a special aptitude and how glad they were to have talent in their officers, and how they liked to show their gladness, etc. I am an older bird now, but first praise is as sweet as first love, pretty nearly. In the end, he said that he hoped that I would continue with the firm, and would I care to go for fourth in the Oquindo, there in the bay, waiting for the evening mails before going west. I said I would be glad to go in the Oquindo, and thanked him for his kindness. Well, Mr. Tarleton, he said, I am glad, and I hope you will be happy in her. 
We have lost a great many officers lately who have found posts ashore, and we want to show our junior officers that if they will stay with us, we will watch over them and see that they are not losers by it. After that, he shook hands and went ashore. You'll shift into the Aquindo straight away, Mr. Tarleton, he said, as he went down the ladder, as soon as you can get your gear together. When he had gone, the old man took a turn with me. Well, you have your chance now, he said, if you care to take it. The boss has his eye on you and you're shoved into the flagship before you've been on the coast a year. You don't want to believe all the guff a company coughs about watch over and not be a loser. A company's a thing, with neither a stern to be kicked nor a soul to be saved. If you ask me, if they would pay their officers a living wage and give them a decent life, they wouldn't find them leaving the service. However, you're a young fellow, Tarleton, and your first success. It's not much good saying this to you, is it? No, sir, I said but I do thank you for your kindness in recommending me to Mr. Green for promotion. An ass I was, if you ask me, he growled. I lose a fine young officer, and now shall have some other griff just finished pinching raisins. I'll have to watch him and train him and do his job for him. My steward's packed your things for you while I've been talking, and your gear's in the boat, and the boat's waiting. When an owner expects you to shift in five minutes, shift in two, and he'll say a nice thing to you and as like not reduce your salary. We shook hands, and I went down the ladder and pulled away from the Malinche to the Aquindo, a 7,000-ton ship, our Commodore's flag, where I reported to the Commodore, old Rora Bosbury, a great big lion of a man. Ha! He roared at me. So you're the lad who can pilot blindfold. Come on into my room a moment till you sign. The steward will shift your gear. And now that you've signed, he added a minute later, I want you to nip into the boat with this letter for old Mr. Waycock. Give it into his hands and wait for his answer and then come straight back aboard, will you? Yes, sir, I said. So down I went to the Aquindo's boat and away. I had been hard at it in a hot sun for five hours and had had no dinner, but duty is duty. As I went, I saw what a change the Aquindo was going to be for me. A man-of-war gig to go ashore in with a reservist's crew a quartermaster to salute at the gangway head, the men leaping to an order everywhere, all of them reservists, and the ship like a new pin. I liked the little that I'd seen of the Rora. Some big sailors are all outside the hearty dog, the breezy admiral type. The Rora was at first sight much such of a one, with a big red face, a broad smile, great white teeth, a shock of white hair, and the rest of it. Later I saw how excellent a sailor he was, and how wise a man. As I came back to the gig with my answer from Mr. Waycock, I noticed on the mole a man a little older than myself waiting at the stairhead with a couple of tin uniform cases beside him. He turned towards me as I drew near and at once I set him down as a naval officer and one whom I had seen somewhere before. I could not imagine where. He was about five feet eight or nine in height with a sailor's face and a look such as I have only seen on the faces of sailors who have a reckless resolution and courage. It is a humorous, daredevil cock of the eye more than anything, or some odd combination of the look of the mouth and the eye together. It can no more be described than genius can be. When it is once seen, it is recognised, and any officer having it can carry a crew into hell and back again and round the North Pole for a pastime. He came up to me at once with a frank and charming air that would have won a mutineer, and said in excellent English, I've missed the tender, and I'm going to the Aquindo to Puno. If you're going off to her, would you take me off? 
I said that I would be delighted and would he step into the gig as I was going off at once. So my coxswain put his cases into the gig and invited him down. He hopped into the boat with a sailor's grace and certainty. It is like old times, he said, to be in an English gig with a brass yoke and white lines. I was trained by your men, you see. Are you in the Navy here then? I asked. No, Santa Anna, he said. But let me introduce myself. I am Brown. They always called me Tom Brown in your Navy. From a book. I have other names. They pronounce it Brone here. I suppose you're descended from the Amarante, I said. And as I spoke, I knew that he was because that old miniature at home was the very image of him. The chap on the postage stamps? The Liberator? Yes, he was my great-great-grandfather. You see, I have English ancestry. I know, I said, and as it happens, Mr. Brown, we're related in a sort of way, very distantly. Your ancestor's sister married a Tarleton. Of Assenden, St. Mary in Berkshire, he said. Yes, I said. More ass than saint, they say in Berkshire. My name is Tarleton, and that's where I come from. We've got a miniature of your great-great-grandfather. He was my great-great-granduncle. I went to Assenden St. Mary once, he said in a queer voice. I knew from the way in which he spoke that my father, who was an odd fish to say the least of it, had been rude to him for being a Catholic or for some other crazy reason or for no reason at all. I knew that there must have been some trouble, for I had never heard of the visit of a Santa Anna cousin. If the visit had been a success, I should have been told of it. My father is a collector, I said, meaning that this might explain his inhumanity. Oh, well, he doesn't seem to collect foreign relatives, he answered. We looked at each other and grinned. I do, I said. That is, if I may. He grinned and asked in Spanish if I spoke that tongue and how long I had been upon the coast. After that, we talked in Spanish till we drew nearer to the Aquindo. Though I did not know it, the Rora was watching for me to see how I brought the gig alongside. The boat had been reported to him and he was there looking out. Well, I can do most things with a boat and being anxious to impress this new sort of cousin who had been in the English Navy and seeing that I had a rare good crew, I told them to give way with a flying moor. The Aquindo was lying head to sea at the green and silver's moorings. I brought the boat round on her port side and across her bows, giving way like blazers. As we came round to starboard, I judged my time, said, in bow, shifted my helm, told my starboard oars to hold water and my port oars to give way, and the gig swerved round almost in her own length and sidled into the gangway, just as I said, toss your oars. Jolly neatly done, Charlie, my new cousin whispered. And if your starboard oar had caught a crab, you'd have ripped her strake off. My starboard oar can't catch a crab, I muttered under my breath. Then I followed him up the gangway. The roarer was waiting for me at the gangway head. He knew Brown, for he said, Ha, my tiente, I'm glad to see you. Steward, see that Lieutenant Brown is at my table tonight. Then turning to me, he said, You have the answer? After he had read it, he said, Since when have you been doing Admiral Swerves? may I ask? Uh, only since I've had a first-rate crew, sir, I answered. He was pleased with the answer, I thought. I haven't seen it done since Admiral Hornbury's time, he said, and that's forty-odd years ago. It's a very pretty thing if it's done judgmatically. And you had a critic in the boat with you. Teniente Brunet is some sailor man. By the way, you haven't had any lunch, have you? Uh, no, sir, I said, but that doesn't matter. Ah, but it does matter, he said. Steward, show Mr. Tarleton to the mess. 
and see that he has everything he needs. He did not comment on my flying more, but I could see that he was pleased with me. I had had some little experience of captains and mates by that time and knew how apt they are to judge by a first impression. I had made a good first impression and vowed to maintain it. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast and, of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.